Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Trance. Five percent of the population can be described as extremely suggestible. What can you make them do? Anything. Simon, close your eyes. I want you to follow my voice. I like your voice. Imagine you're in a place where you feel secure, in control, and you feel so comfortable, so relaxed. All your problems. Where is the painting? I don't remember. Seems so far away and so long ago. I remember that day. What we are is the sum of everything we've ever done, which is constantly being revised and remembered. I know what you were going to do to me. She put that memory there. It's not real. The plan was simple. Hypnotize the guy, you bring me back the painting. Was I hypnotized? He's afraid that once he's remembered, you'll kill him. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, James Janowski from the School of Visual Arts, and tonight's guest, Danny Boyle. Hello. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, what I loved about the film Trance is it takes this nonlinear, unconventional structure and this kaleidoscope of imagery and kind of mirrors the psychological state of Simon played wonderfully by James McAvoy. Yeah. And you don't see that often in movies. Yeah. Well, it'd be, uh, movies are amazing. I, I, I'm a big fan. There's a British director called Nick Rogue who made a series of films. If you've never seen them, he made a series of films called a film called Performance. Um, and it went right the way through to it. He made a film called Eureka, which he had a huge battle with the studio about it. And it's kind of ended his career in one sense. But those movies in that period are extraordinary. And he had this technique were the fluidity of his editing. He would make everything time present. And, and it is extraordinary cinema like that. It, it's, it's a unique art form, I think, because unless you're told by the filmmaker, by grading or the sound of whoosh when things are introduced, you just accept what passes in front of you as time present. And he would use time past, time future, time imagined, all as time present. And so he's a great psychological filmmaker. And it's a wonderful technique you can use for a psychological thriller like this really and there are phrases used in it like it looks like an art heist movie at times uh, and then it looks like an amnesia thriller but it's not really any of those things it looks like a femme fatale thriller at one point but they just you try and use those genres and then twist away from them and and, and the amnesia thing which is obviously in fact, one of the characters in the film says amnesia is bollocks. We all know amnesia is bollocks, you know, because you kind of expect it in a movie, in a thriller movie when, it, when it's introduced. But it's not really about that. It's about, it's not really about a stolen painting either, you know, like the art heist genre. It's about stolen memories and it's about behavioural choices. And 
And it's about the inside of his mind, really, and how important memories are to us. And it is extraordinary that we, we construct our identities out of memories, really. They're, she says it in the film that we, uh, we string together a fragile thread of memories and, and without it, we're nothing, you know, and you see that, obviously, really sadly with Alzheimer's, when it strikes people that you, they disappear and everyone says they're physically there, but there's nothing left of the person. Um, so it's sort of in that territory, yeah, it's a, and it's trying to find a style to present that with, and Rogue's style is something that we borrowed for it. So that what you see is a, a basically a series of trances in the end, and, uh, and the, the barriers between illusion and reality are kind of dismantled and you try and blur that as much as possible to show what his mind is going through, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the imagery, the photography. This is the sixth film that you've worked uh, with your DP. Um, he, he's mentioned that you have this method, this kind of shorthand. Uh, Slumdog was running. Uh, 127 hours was dust, dryness, and prison, I think. Uh -huh. uh, what was the method uh, that you guys, the shorthand you came up with for this film? We what, what we try to do is we, you, you, you have a moment right at the beginning of a film where you, you're, you're making the decisions. It's like a, you're just making a whole series of decisions, what the places are going to look like. Obviously, who's going to be in it? what the places are going to look like that they're going to live in, um, the sound of the film, what's the, you know, how the voice is going to be recorded, which we did something particular on this film. And we, each of those decisions, we tried to make the basis of them to be seductive, as though you were in the chair and being told to relax and take it easy and feel comfortable. And, and it, it's trying to make the film seduce you. So we used a lot of... The, the, the places that they live in are really nice. And I can't be absolutely honest with you and say that a hypnotherapist could afford the kind of place she lives in. But that wasn't the point. It wasn't like a social realist thing. It was actually to make it seductive, reflective, so that you had multiple images of people, which naturally occur, like if you have mirrors near people or reflective surfaces. So there's more than one image of people because they begin the film. They're all very, very different by the time the film ends. They, they go, there are three of them, and they all... When, if you think about it, if you get to see it, after, you know, think about how they began the film and how they end the film. It is lovely to be able to do a film like that, and they move such a long journey. And so we try to make the style of the film uh, add to that as much as possible. So you can't quite trust... It's a question of what you can trust, the information you can trust. And certainly the film begins with James McAvoy, who's a lovely, warm, friendly presence, and he appears to be your guide at the beginning of the film your reliable narrator, but you may not think that by the time the film ends, that's all I can say. Um, film is, you know, it's a visual medium, and I think audiences can be seduced by the Danny Boyle imagery, kinetic energy, but in this film, I think sound is just as important as the visual, especially because you're dealing with hypnosis, and there's this thing about the, the level, the timber of the voice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we had it. We, the guy, he just won an Oscar, actually. The guy who recorded it is a guy called Simon Hayes. And he did all the voice recording on and singing recording on Les Mis. And he, and he got the kind of, um, he got the Academy Award, and rightly so, because he's a bizarre guy. And we hired him deliberately because we wanted the voices to be all recorded much closer than they normally are, so that you could play with that as a... Um, as a device in it and it means weirdly enough laying a lot of carpet everywhere because what they do is that and he has a team of guys that he, who are basically they call themselves sound technicians but actually they're like carpet layers 
because what they want to do is take out every single rattle, footstep, and you've got to add all that later so that you get the voice pure, absolutely pure. And then you can manipulate it however you want it. And it's quite subtle the way it's used, but it, it does make a significant difference to the feel of the film. You know, and they laid a lot of carpet. And they'd be in and out. Every scene, they'd be laying carpet, you know, and tacking it down like carpet layers do in your flat and then ripping it up after the next one. So it was a crazy kind of show like that. If we could talk a little bit about the casting. Um, you had already mentioned James McAvoy. There is this likability about him. Um, uh, can you just talk about bringing him on board? Well, he was... He was James is one that I think probably most... A lot of people know him from um, X-Men, and like when we cast him, he, my only concern with casting, I thought he was a bit, he might be a bit young, so he came in and auditioned for us. And he's not, of course, because he's like 31 now. And, he's be, and he, he wanted to play the part because there there's a journey in it towards a darker thing that he was very keen to explore if he could because I think he gets known as the good guy. And he, we tried to use that at the beginning of the film. You set up this expectation that he is your reliable narrator. And... The only thing he said is because he knew the film was going to be released in America, he said, you'll want me to do it in English, won't you? Like RP English, which is like an English, proper English accent. And of course, he's from Scotland. And I said, no, 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 you've got to do it in Scottish because I love Scottish. And Sean Connery's to blame for all this because, you know, every performance Sean Connery did, no matter who he was playing, he did it in a Scottish accent. Didn't matter where he came from, he did it in a Scottish accent. And I love that. And it kind of holds a spell. There's something about the Celtic accent, because I've used Killian Murphy, who's Irish, and Ewan McGregor, who's also Scottish, and a lot of those Scottish actors who were in Trainspotting. I, I have a love of that accent. I really do, yeah. Was the part of the casting, or the thought process, you have three actors, all different cultures. Did that factor in? It, it, we, we, we originally were going to shoot the film here, in Manhattan, and with an English woman playing the hypnotherapist, because we always wanted her to come from somewhere far away and to be a stranger, to, not a stranger to the city, but to, so that there was no one that she could call on in the city. Like she couldn't kind of go around and see her sister or her mom or you know, anything like that. And then we, we got involved in the Olympics, the opening ceremony, and we decided to shoot Trance in London. And really it doesn't matter which city you choose it. There's a kind of voiceover at the beginning of the first film we did, Shallow Grave, which he says, it could be any city, it doesn't matter, you know, all of them, any of them will do. It's just a large city where crime and anonymity can kind of sit together and a, a kind of, you can create a bubble of isolation um, between, you know, within which the characters just exist and revolve around each other. So um, we were very lucky to get Rosario Dawson because she brings a kind of, I don't know how this works for you guys, but in Britain it's like she's like Californian and therapy and, you know, that idea that we can talk and if we keep talking, we can solve any problem, you know, we can just talk and we cure. And, and so she brings that lovely sense of it to it. And again, begins the film like that and ends the film in a very different way. But Vincent, who's French, of course, was a very, very late. He suddenly became available very, very late and we went to see him and uh, I love him as an actor. I think he's one of the world's great actors. So it's, it, it's just happenstance that they happen to come from anywhere. But actually, in, anyway, in London, there are, there are over a quarter of a million French people live in London. Unbelievable. In fact, so much so, they have their own MP. They elect an MP. Those French residents in London elect an MP for the French Parliament. Even though they live in London, they have their own representative in the French Parliament. So 
there's a huge population there. And, he, and then again, he, so he starts the film like a... Um, I, we've seen him play it before. If you've never seen him play a gangster, you should see, check out Meireen, this film he made. It's just extraordinary, in it? So he begins the film like a, like a gangster and you sort of know him, but he ends up in a very different place. You know, and those journeys, I love those journeys for the actors. And they, were, they all did it brilliantly, yeah. Yeah, well, when the movie starts out, we gangster, that's all he is. But there's this, uh, you start to see a tender side to him, another side to him. But one of the moments that I really loved in the film is when Rosario Dawson discovers something in his apartment. And she goes, I always have to remember, he's, you're a gangster. Yes. I thought that was great. She said, in fact, she says, I must remember never to forget that yeah. you're a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very important moment. If you do see the film, it's... Try and, try and keep an eye on the gun. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, the painting. Why Goya? Well, it, it, it wasn't specified in the script, but we... I mean, we, Goya is the first great painter of the human mind. I think before Goya, there were portraits. And in fact, he was a portrait painter himself as well. And they could be very psychologically incisive paintings from the masters, but they were the surface. And of course, what Goya did, he's the first modernist. He went inside the mind. They said about him, he went into the bullring of the mind. And he painted the, the dreams and the nightmares in there. And so he's, from that point of view, he's the ideal painter for us. And, and the painting that's stolen, which is a Goya, is interesting. It's called Witches in the Air. And it's sort of a, it's sort of a stealing painting anyway. There's something going on in it. It's very abstract in a way. W what its absolute intention is, but it's clearly the inside of this young man's mind who's at the bottom of the painting, shrouded in this blanket. And that was a symbol for us of Simon. Th there's another reason for Goya as well. He was, the first, he was the first person ever to paint the female form as it was. And he, it was so controversial at the time that he had to paint two versions of the Maya I don't know whether you know the painting. There's one version, the naked Maya, and then the, he had to paint her, uh, painted her clothed as well because of the, the authorities were outraged at what he'd done. And that's a very important plot point in the film as well, which if you, if you see the film, you'll, you'll, you'll find that out. I don't want to give away too much because it's already, I can sense I'm giving you too much information. You should ideally have very little when you go into it. Yeah. Well, that, that's actually an interesting statement that you just made because as a film where there, there's very, it's very complex, there's a lot going on, and you have to walk this line. Um, how much information do you give the audience and how much do you keep back so that way they're still engaged and not losing them? How did you do that as the director on this film? How did you approach that? Well, normally you, you, you're very extremely paranoid about giving away too many clues and you, and, and you say to the actors, don't look at him at that moment because everybody will know, everybody will guess what's going to happen. Of course, it's nonsense. You've got to leave in clues um, because people need to pick up the breadcrumb trail and hopefully they can't put it all together by the time the film arrives at where it's going to go. But they need to be on that process with you, you know. And you need to... And it's surprising how many clues you can give without giving it away. It's one of the things you have to learn. Supposedly, I don't know whether this is true, but they say M. Night Shyamalan didn't, was convinced that it was insane to use the line, I see dead people, in The Sixth Sense because he thought it would just destroy the film and give it away and everything like that. And, and it was his collaborators who kind of forced him to leave it in. And of course, it's become one of the great lines in cinema, hasn't it? And it doesn't give it away at all. I mean, you, in retrospect, you think you should. But that's the great thing about those clues. If you go back and see it again, which I can recommend, by the way, seeing it twice. Um, <laughs> I would say that, I know. Um, 
you, you, you will, the, the clues are clearly an indicator of what you should be aware of, and you're more aware the second time, obviously. One of the approaches from watching the film, it seems as though you really want to make a film noir more modern. Can you talk about making it, how you went about doing that? Is, am I... Yeah, no, we, we, obviously it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of crime, it's a thriller with crime, uh, certainly is the starting point of it. Um, and, and I love those noir films, and we wanted to... But we didn't want to make a kind of like a Hitchcock film or make a noir, an updated noir, but we wanted to use elements of the genre. And, and the most particular element of it is that she behaves like a femme fatale at one point, quite clearly, and it's... But we didn't want it to be like the icy, blonde, kind of Hitchcock, femme fatale, that kind of 50s femme fatale. We wanted it to be something stronger than that in the end and not quite so cold. And um, that's an element of the story I can't tell you about, but it, you, you'll find out as you make your way through the film why it's, it's not like an update of it, but it's trying to use the femme fatale idea and then put a, put a twist on it. You know, again, it's a genre element that you try and manipulate um, towards a, a modern audience, really. That was the idea of that. Um, um, a nice little touch, I thought, was the, the name of the club. Um, here you're trying to do something a little more modern, and it's called Analog. Yes, it is. It is. It, it's kind of like it's a. It, we had this great name for the club. We thought we'll call it Analog, and then it was a nightmare seeing if there were any clubs in the world called Analog, because obviously then they sue you straight away, and it's you, know, you have to change it in post. And in fact, there isn't a club in the world called Analog. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what a great name for a club. There, there's also a, there's a digital element to the film, which is the, the, there's an iPad in it, and I'm not saying that because we're here. Uh, believe me, honestly, I'm not. And they didn't sponsor us and all that kind of stuff. But it is quite important in the film. She uses it as a device at one point to reassure him about how he can control the story. So there's a very big digital element in, in the film. And so it was lovely to contradict that and call the club analog. How did you approach, because there's moments when we go into Simon's mind. And um, what was the, the way that you wanted to approach that? Well, we wanted to... <clears throat> as you'll see very, very early in the film you, it's quite clear there's, a, there's a, a stylistic device that takes you in there it's this kind of wipe thing that takes you in there and it's very self-conscious and deliberately used early on to reassure you that's clearly what's happened it's a, it's a trance it's an, a, an imaginary thing and then you dispense with it later on in the film and, it, and, you, and you try then to make that change invisible so you don't know quite where you are because like, for instance, there are, in, in theory, there are three trances in the film, but in fact, there could be four or five. That's really up to you. You know, you, you, it's up to you to make that decision, really. And certainly by the end of the film, you can, you can certainly... Um, it, it's certainly something that you can imagine there's more than three if you wanted to. If you, that's up to you, really. Uh, I'm going to ask one more question. I believe that you're going to introduce a clip. Um, how much did you learn about hypnosis? that you didn't know, that, that kind of surprised you? Oh, yeah, no. I mean, it was a riveting... I mean, the, 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 the guy who invented it was called Franz Mesmer, which is where we get the word mesmerising from, or, you know, mesmerism. It's kind of... And I've always used that as a word, as vocab. People say, what do you want your film to do? You know, like all the films you make, and you say, I want them to be mesmerising. And it comes from him. He, no, he, he called it animal magnetism. But in fact, it was 
hypnosis he was either inventing or discovering, depending on what you believe. And we, you kind of do the research about it. And it is interesting, because I used to go and watch this. We have a great stage hypnotist in Britain called Darren Brown. I don't know whether any of you have seen his work. And he is absolutely extraordinary what he gets people to do on stage. And I always used to think, I think that's probably an actor that's been paid a lot of money and is a very good actor. But in fact, there were never any stories came out months later about a disgruntled actor who hadn't been paid enough. And, you know, because in fact, they're real people. And what he does, this, I don't think this is giving anything away, is that they use like a, an introduction like this. They're selecting the 5 to 10% of the population for whom hypnotism is extremely suggestible. These are people who want to lose themselves in the process. They want to give themselves over to the process. For the other 85, 90% of the population, it's a benign meditative tool. You always know where you are. You know, you're never going to do anything you don't want to do. But in his case, Simon's case, he's like one of the people that Darren Brown would get up on stage. He does, thank God, want to be suggested to, as, as he is in the film. So, um, and what happens in the film is ethically highly dubious, but clinically it's possible, supposedly. So, yeah. um, We're going to watch a clip. Uh, I believe you're going to introduce it. Oh yes, there's a, obviously at the beginning of the film there's a kind of heist, and I just um, I, when this, this this is a little bit of, 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 of the heist in in process. It's an auction. At, we, we weren't allowed to call it Sotheby's uh, for legal reasons, though it is Sotheby's, and it's called Delancey's for legal reasons. And the guy who's the main auctioneer, the older guy who's the main auctioneer, is in fact the chief auctioneer at Sotheby's. So there's a clue, and they gave us a lot of hints about how to steal a painting. So. It's useful to see the film from that point of view as well, if you're ever thinking about it. So, anyway, here you go. one day it must, 
It is imperative not to panic. Follow the drill and let the training kick in. So I should, I should have told you, in fact, the guys in black, in the, in the black van, they're uh, Ukrainian ex-naval commandos, and they're rumoured to be outside, big auction dates. No idea whether that's true, but if you are thinking of stealing a painting, you may have to deal with them. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, opening it up to questions. I know you've probably gotten this a lot recently, but are you going to direct a James Bond movie? <laughs> yeah. But I also want to ask, what kind of James Bond movie would you make? Like a more serious one, like the more recent, or something that's more like the Roger Moore ones? <laughs> um, so we made a, James, made a James Bond movie. We made a little one for the Olympic opening ceremony with a stellar cast. So we'd never be able to get a cast like that for a, a, a full-length feature film. So, no, I'm, I, I love the movies. And I, the books, when I was a teenager... I read the books from cover to cover multiple times. They were like an escape for me. So I kind of know them really well. But they, we work, the way we work is that we, 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 we have a deal where we, we work under $20 million. Like this one costs $15 million. And that gives you freedom to cast who you want, to do what you want with the characters, with the genre, to twist, to be perverse. Um, to be as dark as you like, to be as irreverent as you like as well. And I don't think you get... When you take $100 million, you don't have that amount of freedom. You have to genuflect much more in front of the genre. You can only take small risks with it, you know? And so it's not my... I wouldn't be the right guy to do it because the way I think I bring the best out of myself is under this cap where you feel restricted, but actually it's quite liberating because you, you can't just call on money to solve the problems all the time. And, and you don't have that obligation, you know, to be, you know, to genuflect in front of the genre all the time. You know, you can kind of be its master more, really. So I'm not really the right kind of guy to do it. So you should have a go. You obviously know a lot about them. <laughs> okay, I was wondering, how exactly did you fit uh, Ewan McGregor inside that toilet? Because it looked like it would be impossible to fit him through that. And that's always, I've always wondered that. Yeah, I shouldn't really tell you, actually. but um, No, seriously, I remember at the time, because we made the film, like, the film was released in 1996, and it was dead early days for CG. It was like they'd just begun to use CG. And the scene was in the script, you know, that he disappears down the toilet, and a few people said, oh, you should use CG for that. And it was like, the way it was said then was like, it was really like, you should use CGI for that. And I remember going to see... A movie, I can't remember which one it was, but it was a Santa Claus movie with Tim Allen. <laughs> and, he, and he went down a chimney, and it obviously was CGI that they'd used, and it was terrible. It really, and I remember thinking, we're not going to use CGI on that. So we used, actually, to tell you the truth, we used a theatre technique, which is trompe l'oeil, which is that you, you cut the toilet in half, and you only see it from one angle, and... On the other side of it was a children's slide, a silver slide, like out of a children's playground. And he just slid down that, so it was really lovely for him to do. And then as he did it, the cinematographer, Brian Tefano, said, oh, if, you, if he goes round, if he turns round as he goes down, you'll think he's gone round the U-bend. And you do, you think, oh yeah, he's twisting around the U-bend. And then some other guy, one of the props guys, says, yeah, and when he does that, I'll chuck up some water. I'll be waiting here with a cup of water and chuck it up. And so you, when you make good decisions, good things come out of them, you know, and everybody had a gas doing it, and it was lovely, and it's, you know, people remember it really well, I think, so. 
it's interesting though, because what we, it's the way you accept, it, it's, there's, a, there's a couple of moments like that in this movie where you stretch reality. I, d I don't mean you go surreal because it's like more fun than that. It's not, but you, you lift out of reality. And I, one of the things I've learned about the way we work is we get the actors, we get, the actors are good, they're all very believable, they kind of do social realistic acting, but we get them not to just, we get them to do it at a slightly heightened level and kind of you stretch social reality so it's a bit more tightly strung. And it means you can lift off and do odd things like the toilet and a couple of things that happen in this that don't belong in an absolute social realist world and you accept them. You know, they, they don't feel alien to the film and that's because of the acting. Because a lot of actors turn up and they, they will just do nothing. You know, it's part of the philosophy of film acting, you should do nothing. And they, they tend to do that and I'm fine with that. They do one or two takes like that and then I try and get them to push it a bit more so that the films are always quite vividly acted, you know? And maybe because I come from theater, I like them lifting it a bit more than they might normally do on another film. And, it's, and then it allows you to enter into a slightly different world sometimes if you want that for the story. And there's a couple of moments like the toilet moment in, in this film actually, where we kind of venture out from the tight realist base, yeah. Oh, cool. Um. They say that directors never return to space. Does that resonate with you after Sunshine? Would you ever make another sci-fi film? I, I said that. It was me. Oh, that said, I was me, yeah. Well, I this said, is the worst question fact, I've ever you, asked. No, 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 I'll give you the full <laughs> quote. I said, unless you're involved in a franchise where you can't resist the money, no director ever goes back in space because it is an absolute nightmare that I can't tell you how difficult it is to do. And the problem is you are the problem. And by you, I include myself, it's the audience of the problem. Because space is, if you watch the space station footage, the guys are not moving in slow motion like this. The weightless is not slow motion. It's actually quite rapid and jerky because there's no resistance. But if you show that in a feature film, you walk out and just say, he couldn't even be bothered to do it properly. He couldn't even be bothered to do what it's like in space properly. And that was Kubrick, because he invented that before, it, before we'd put a man... I think he, you know, he made that film before we'd put a man in space, really. Certainly on a, outside the cabin. So you kind of think everything's like that. And to do that is a nightmare in gravity conditions. To kind of do that slow motion stuff, weightless stuff, just takes you forever and ever and ever. And you think you're losing your mind doing it. So it's actually your fault. There you go. Because <laughs> you'll walk out. If you did it properly, they'll, you just go, no, that's not right, and walk out. So it's, a, you know, it's that. And it's really interesting. Because obviously there are space movies which are fantastical, like Star Wars, which are kind of anything goals in a way. But strict space movies are very, very narrow stories because we've hardly been there at all. So they are very limited. And if you think about them, most of them involve, and ours did, most of them involve a crew and they receive a signal from somewhere and that changes everything and it's really weird and that's the story that you're in so when you're making a film like that you're in a very narrow corridor with some gigantic figures like Stanley Kubrick Ridley Scott you know you're thinking oh bloody hell you know it's like real it's a bit of a nightmare really so space I don't know whether I will be back in space you know no uh, hi Danny um, I hear Rio are looking for an artistic director 
Are you interested? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, I think Rio will do a fine job without me. Um, I was very proud to do it because I live in London and um, I was very proud to re represent the country and the city and, you know, and, and we had a great... You know, it turned out very well for everyone. We were very pleased with it. But no, I would certainly wouldn't go back there either. <laughs> to the opening ceremony or space, neither of those. No, I no, I mean, it's, it, it'll be very interesting to see who they choose. Because we were very lucky. Because they, they offered it to us and we'd won eight Academy Awards. And that's why they offered us the job. But actually, what you do is you make sure you use that on them. So that when they objected to what we were doing, you have to bash them, you bash them on the head with the Academy Award and say, you can't talk to me like that. I've won eight of these. You know, and and it's, it works. Believe me, it works. They go, oh, all right then. <laughs> and they back off. So we were, very, we were very lucky at that time to be able to use it like that. Yeah. Hi. I was uh, wondering what uh, camera format did you use for the... For the film, for this one, it's the we use the Alexa, which pretty much everybody's using at the moment. Um, the digital camera, the film has finished. The labs are closing. That you can't really make anything on celluloid anymore, or it's going to be very, very difficult to do it. Do you miss it? Hmm? Do you miss the film? Do I miss it? Yeah. Personally, not. I because from 28 days later, we've been using digital equipment, um, and we were very proud that that was like the first digital film that got a mainstream release. Um, so we feel like, not like pioneers, but because, you know, I'm, I'm not that technical, to be honest, but I love the freedom it gives you. The Alexa's very like a film camera, actually, and you can make it look like film. It's really weird. I'll tell you one of the weird things is they still make celluloid prints for those cinemas that haven't got the digital projectors yet. And when you look at the prints now, because your eye has become so accustomed to the flow of digital, you can see the flickering for about 15 minutes. You know, because the way, whereas in the old days, you were so used to eradicating that flicker, you know, the fact that it was still images that you were making move. But now you're not, and you can see, you, and I remember we watched the print and we said it looks like there's a fault on the projector, and the guy said, no, that's just because you are so accustomed to not seeing film anymore, you know, that you will see, and, it, and, and we watched the whole print, he said it'll, it'll disappear after about 15 minutes. Your eye will remember to forget it. And, it, and it did. By the end of the film, it was fine. So it's weird. No, I'm I'm happy to be on digital. We, so we use the Alexa, and we also use the Canon, the D5. For, we use them for certain shots in different ways. It's just a way of working that we have. So I'm very happy in the digital world. Yeah. Hey, Danny. Uh, congrats on the another cool film. Um, I just wanted to ask you, what's next on the cards? Obviously, you've got projects coming left, right, and centre. And the big question: train spotting sequel. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna, we're trying, we're, we are, um, we're hoping to do a train spotting sequel, and it's a genuine ambition. It's not a tease, and we've got an idea of doing a, um, you know, a version of it where, which is not just like an easy sequel that just does the same thing again. Um, it, it's to try and look at the same actors playing the same parts 20 years later. You know, when, it, when they literally, a generation has passed. And what have they done with their time? Are they still friends? Are they bound together? Are they in the same town? Are they, have they loved and lost, you know? So it'll have its own identity, I think, which it, we'll try and call it T2, if James Cameron will let us, his lawyers. I'm sure they'll be in touch soon. Um, and so we'll try and call it T2. But it will, 
have its own identity, I think, rather than it being more of the same. So that's the idea of it. We're working on a couple of period movies at the moment, actually. So on scripts for period movies, weirdly enough. So, but it won't be like Downton Abbey kind of period. It'll be. <laughs> that's the only thing I can tell you about that. So. Music has always played an extremely important part in all of your films, um, whether it be in the Underworld track from Train Spotting, or um, even Jai Ho in Slumdog. Um, I'm wondering. Two questions. First off, what your role is um, creatively in picking these huge tracks that really define your films? Because um, I also noticed that you don't always have a music supervisor on the films as well. Yeah, no. That's, that's right. I don't, sorry. Oh, no, no I, you could go ahead and answer Yeah, that no, no, no. We, I, it's really important. I love music. I think as a country, Britain, that's what we're best at. It's a little place. We produce the most amazing music and very idiosyncratic. It tends to follow its own rules. And, it, and, it, and, it's, and I think genuinely, and I can say this without any kind of modesty at all, it's really inspiring for the rest of the world, our music. I mean, I'm not musical myself, except as a consumer. I love it, and I try and use it in the movies. Um, we're very lucky to have the guys, the guy from Underworld, Rick Smith, did the whole score for this. And um, it's, an, it's an amazing score as he kind of enters. It's another way of going in, your question about going inside Simon's mind. and. Rick's score does that. There's a couple of songs, like quite famous songs used in it, like Chanson d'Amour, I don't know whether you know that. But, you know, like, and you get that half-remembered song that you sort of remember, and, and they are like oases in the film, pleasurable oases in the film, because his score, which links them together, is pulling you further and further into McAvoy's mind, He's, he, the, the character in the film, yeah. So... Um, just to tell you, can I tell you a little story about Jai Ho? Go right ahead. So we went, to, we went to Delhi in India. We were supporting this guy who rescues child slaves in India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. And these are kids who have been sold into slavery or, or their parents have been fooled into selling them into slave jobs in factories like brick factories and from very, very poor areas. And we went to this reception area and there were like 30 kids who'd just been rescued. And we, he, the, the guy is an amazing man who, who organises this, and he organises it across the subcontinent. And um, he said, would you say something to them? And I thought, okay, well, I, I, I'll say... So I said to them, and he translated, I said, do, do um, any of you know where England is? And, of course, none of them did. And then I thought, I'll be really smart and follow it up. Ah, but do any of you know who David Beckham is? And I thought, yeah, there'll be a sea of hands go up and it'll be, you know, the ice will be broken. But before I could say the David Beckham bit of it, the guy said, Let, can I ask them something just to show you? And he asked them, so this is in Delhi in India, and they've been rescued in India. He, he asked them in Hindi how many of them knew. So I'd said, how many do you know where England is? And he asked them, do you know what India is? And out of the 30, only three of them put their hands up. Only three of them had heard of India as a country because they'd been brought up in absolute ignorance. They'd no education, they'd no expectations, nothing. And he, part of his process is to educate them, which is amazing. But they all knew the words of Jai Ho, which they danced at the end. Their kind of kids all got up and, and uh, tears were running down my eyes. Down my face, it was extraordinary, you know. So there you go, music. It's just they didn't even know what India was, but they knew the words to Jai Ho because somehow it had got through to them, you know. I mean, that's partly the obsession in India of music in films, you know, Bollywood musicals. But it's also the power of music is beyond sort of language. You can learn 
learn it without even knowing what it means or you know where it's come from or what it's about but it means it speaks to you in some way yeah completely agree um just the second part you basically answered already but what your creative direction was musically on this film and if there was a track in this film that you'd say is like the defining of your film as well <laughs> well you've got to see it first and then it's up to you to answer that question <laughs> thanks um, you see, you are probably one of the 5 to 10%. So when that guy was telling you about Darren Brown, because I've spotted you in the audience going like that a couple of times, <laughs> and he would pick you out and bring you up and hypnotise you. So you should definitely see the movie. Okay, yes. Um, as someone who really enjoyed um, vacuuming completely nude in paradise, I was, yeah, I loved it. Um, especially the, the, um, in the conference scene at the end where they're all pushing the vacuuming cleaners. I thought that was great. Um, but I was just curious if you ever plan to do anything for television again. Ah, um, well, I've worked in... I started working in the theatre, and then I went into television. I got a job in, the, in Northern Ireland um, at, at the BBC there. And then, and then I, I was... And then we got, got a film, uh, Shallow Grave, and I worked in films. But after we'd made the film The Beach, I was very unhappy on it because it was such a huge movie. It was the only movie that we've made that wasn't under $20 million. It was like $55 million. And I, I was very unhappy with me in it. Not with anybody in it, like Leo or anybody like that. They were all amazing. But I was very unhappy with me in it. And so we went after that. We went and we made two tiny little television films. One of which is the one you're referring to, Vacuuming Completely Nude in Paradise, it's called. Very strange film. And an equally strange film called Strumpet, which they're very bizarre films, with Chris Eccleston in it, actually, so who became Doctor Who and was in Shallow Grave and stuff like that. But I'd have no problem working on television. I love... And it, obviously, in this country, television's become extraordinary. You know, you think about Breaking Bad. I mean, the stuff that goes on in television now is like... It's like the 70s in movie, in you know, adult-themed, you know... Um, so I'd have no hesitation, yeah. I'd be delighted to, yeah. What are you offering? Have you got any? <laughs> Hi. Um, I was just wondering, just on the back of you saying you were going to do a sequel to Trainspotting. Um, so Irvine Welsh did the prequel. He's written the prequel last year. So why did you decide, you know, you don't want to do the prequel? Is it because you don't want to do an adaptation or you don't, you'd rather do a sequel? It's simply to do with, the, with the, the idea, which is that we can use the same actors to play the same parts. And it is amazing the affection there is for the film. People remember the characters' names, Begbie and Sick Boy and Spud and Renton. I mean, I can't remember the character names of you know, the characters in the films I've done. You know, a lot of them, I, can't, I remember the actors, but I don't remember what was the name of the character they were playing. But people remember that one. And so to be able to, if you can use those same actors playing those same parts, the idea of what time has done to them, just visually, the history they'll bring, their own history, the history of the characters of what's happened in that 20 years, feels like a very rich way of going back to it, rather than going back to it just because it's popular, you know? I think it'll allow us to explore a bit more. So that's the reason to do a sequel, if you like, rather than a prequel because you'd have to get a bunch of different actors for the prequel, because they'd all be kids. I don't know what you'd do with the prequel. I, um, yeah, so anyway, we'll do the sequel if, we, if we're lucky, yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, you said you were working on uh, period pieces, and I wondered, with the music question, you use guys like A.R. Rahman or like Rick Smith in the past. Is there someone who you would trust to score a period piece, and what would that sound like? I know it'd be interesting. That would be one of the 
obviously because I do like you were saying I love music and um, so it'd be very interesting to see what how you can connect it to the modern world really can you connect it to the modern world through music or not that'll be one of the questions down the line for us to for us to use it you know there are some great you know period scores I remember um, what was the last of the, that score on Last of the Mohicans Have you ever seen Last of the Mohicans the Daniel Day-Lewis that's a fantastic score on that you know that's a traditional score isn't it but it has a kind of it connects with you in a way so I don't know is the honest is the absolute honest truth of that but we'll try certainly I believe that's it. Uh, Trance opens this Friday. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for remembering. That's why we're here. Yes, it opens on Friday, and you can see it more than once. Absolutely encourage that. Um, yes, and, uh, and then it's, like, it's in New York and L.A. on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and then the following weekend it opens like 300 places. So it's a kind of platform release like that. So, yes, please, I encourage you to go. Obviously, I would, but... <laughs> you, it's better if you say that, James, actually. I, I, I'm just going to say thank you. Yeah, right. This was great. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Thanks very much, everyone. <laughs>